Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and healthcare with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is calling for a lifeline for community health centers in the next COVID-19 relief package. Speaking with reporters recently, the Democrat also gave her predictions for working with Republicans in the new session. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard with more. Senator Gillibrand, a Democrat, says that as the coronavirus crisis continues to surge, the nation's lawmakers need to turn their attention to supporting community health centers. Community health centers will play a key role in our ability to end and recover from this pandemic, but only if they can remain fully operational and help those most in need. Community health centers, according to the senator, play a crucial role in providing health services to lower income and minority communities, communities hardest hit by the pandemic. As the new Congress gets underway and lawmakers tackle President Biden's nearly $2 trillion COVID proposal, Gillibrand wants to establish a $13.5 billion community health center preparedness program. The program would include emergency funding and federal dollars to support vaccination efforts at community health centers. The senator is also calling for a $12.4 billion investment in workforce and infrastructure. The Biden administration unveiled its national strategy for the COVID-19 response and pandemic preparedness Thursday afternoon. Gillibrand predicted the new White House will be able to greatly increase coronavirus vaccine supply, enough to vaccinate all New Yorkers in the next couple months. I really believe that's possible because uh, President Biden is now going to use the Defense Production Act in a way that will be useful, unlike President Trump. He's making sure we produce the all the testing materials, the contact tracing materials, the PPE that people need to give the vaccines. Uh, all the logistical work that wasn't being done by the Trump administration will now be being done by the Biden administration. With a split Senate where Vice President Harris will hold the tie-breaking vote, the debate over a power-sharing agreement continues. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is so far at an impasse with Minority Leader Mitch McConnell over the future of the filibuster. New York's junior senator said she would be open to allowing Republicans to hold on to the filibuster, depending on the opposing conference's behavior. And so maybe in this sharing agreement, we can have a a period of time to see if they're willing to negotiate in good faith and willing to um, not hold common sense things up and not have lots of party line votes. If that's possible, then maybe we can govern with the filibuster. But if they start jamming us on basic things like COVID relief, then that may change Senator Schumer's view. But Gillibrand said she does imagine greater cooperation with Republicans in the new Congress with President Biden in the Oval Office. And the reason I say that is I've been working regularly with Republicans during the entire Trump administration. I have dozens of bipartisan bills waiting to be voted on. 
I know that under Senator Schumer, those ideas will be welcome and those bills will be voted on. And so I believe we will be more effective and more productive because we'll just get more votes. For more on the new administration and reaction from members of Congress in our region, visit WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Lucas Willard. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Well, Alan, I was listening to Governor Cuomo this week talking about the variants and a conversation he had with his daughter asking, well, Dad, what does this mean? Will the vaccine help it? And it came down to the governor saying, we don't know. And he kept repeating that and saying, this is why we have to stay vigilant against this virus at this time. And from what I was hearing, he he seemed worried. He said he was. He certainly seemed it. He said he was worried. He is worried. And here's why. Because the virus will not sit still. It will change. And as it does, as it gets worse, anybody who says that we're all set now is just wrong. The potential here is monumental. We know we have a vaccination that will help short term now, but we don't know how long it'll last. And we don't know whether it will mutate. And so he's learned his lesson. Governor Cuomo wrote a book in which he basically said, these are lessons in leadership. This is how you should lead. And from that perspective, he's absolutely right. You know, as you listen to his remarks, he is trying to tell you the way that he is thinking. So when he tells his daughter, we're not out of the woods yet, he is so right. And anybody who thinks that he is not right better start thinking again. Right. And the other part of his worry was the vaccines themselves. As we were waiting this week for another shipment, we were running out. People weren't able to get that dose or a second dose. And that vaccine supply is a real issue. The governor also has to deal with those who are pushing back at him, like, for example, the UUP, the Higher Education Union. You spoke with the president, Fred Cole, this week who pointed out that the folks who are on the SUNY campuses, those that are in the staff that provide essential duties, still don't have the vaccine, aren't on the list to get it, and quite frankly, need more protective equipment. David, I want to start by saying Fred Cole is hardly the worst of the Cuomo deniers. He was largely supportive of the governor and what he was able to do. I can tell you, though, that if you're the head of a union, and you're asking your people and the university is asking your people to go into a classroom unprotected and unvaccinated, of course you're going to take the side of the people you're supposed to be protecting. That's what he's supposed to do. All of these governors have a real limitation, and that is there isn't enough. There isn't enough vaccine to go around. There will be. Look, this is a country that could, during World War II, and by the way, more people have died from this than anybody ever thought of in World War II, But what would you think? You would say, we can make a plane in a day, and you do. We can make a battleship, and you do. We could make an aircraft carrier of all things, and you do. If we could do all of that during World War II, we can darn well make it happen now. We can also make sure that we have the Defense Production Act 
this is the worst crisis that this country has ever faced. That's right, ever faced. And if we can't mount our resources so that we have more vaccine, we're just wrong. A story in, and we'll take it with the source, the New York Post, tensions emerge between Governor Cuomo and Chuck Schumer amid pandemic, sources say. There's a lot of unsighted sources, and there are cited sources, including Democrats, who describe somewhat of a tense relationship between the two. Well, look, Chuck Schumer is the majority leader. He's the leader of the Democratic Party. He has to watch out for the good of all his members of his conference, because if he doesn't do that, uh, he's not majority leader anymore. He has to bring home the bacon to New York. There's no question. The question then is, how much bacon? And what we're seeing is this split because Cuomo wants a lot of money for New York State. And he says, we deserve it. We were the first to really suffer from the pandemic. We have all of these problems. We need to do it. And it doesn't stop there. As you know, one of the things that Trump and his people did was to get rid of state and local tax deductions, which meant a lot to a lot of people. So now the Democrats have both houses and a president. Will they put it back? Hmm. They need the money so much that by doing that, they lose too much money. So there is tension and there would be tension between Schumer and Cuomo. If you're a New Yorker, you might side with Cuomo. If you're not, you might side with Schumer. So there you are. Legislative Gazette Political Observer, Alan Shartok. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustino. SUNY Oneonta will welcome back roughly 25% of its students to campus this semester after a COVID-19 outbreak forced the college to shutter its doors and return to remote learning in the fall. The outbreak, in which over 700 students were infected, led to the ouster of Barbara Jean Morris as college president. Former Purchase College interim president Dennis Craig was tapped by SUNY to lead the push for spring, with 20% of classes expected to take place in person as part of a dual modality model. Craig discussed the college's plans with the Legislative Gazette's Jesse King. We are testing all of our in-person students every week, Monday and Tuesday. We have a very well-staffed testing operation. All of our students are required um, to self-isolate for a period of time before they return to campus, and they're required to produce a negative result, a negative test result, before they return. We've developed a plan, I think, to really pay a lot of attention to our off-campus students. We have programs and outreach to get them to the testing that's on campus. We're going to be hosting interactive town halls to work with them to plan out what a safe, robust activity, social activity calendar looks like so students make good choices uh, with their social time. We're training and we're bringing back a pretty large-scale group of students that are RAs that will be helping us monitor the behavior of their peers, keep tabs on them. Um, I will continue my weekly Wednesday afternoon meetings. I meet directly with students virtually. We have about 1,500 of our students will be taking at least one in-person type of class. So that's very low and low density. Normally this time of the year, uh, we'd have about 6,200, 6,300 students on campus taking in-person classes. So the lower density, I think, is going to help us out a whole lot. 
There were many students that decided to finish out their academic year being 100% remote. All of this together, I think, creates a low-density environment with a lot of testing that makes us in a better place. Uh, the uniform code of conduct, the community standards, uh, the, the people on campuses who uh, police and monitor things, the judicial system, that's been advi- uh, revised across SUNY. The students who don't cooperate or don't follow the rules, there's a quick process in place for immediate suspension from school. You know, at this stage in the pandemic, if people are still breaking the rules, there has to be consequences with conduct, and that's been strengthened. These are, I think, the key pieces of our plan that are different and were not in place when Oneonta began the academic year in the fall. As acting president, like, what are some of the things you've learned so far about the campus and what needs to be done to rebuild trust here? Spending a lot more time on communication and being empathetic on the information that our people need. You know, one of our challenges has been getting our arms around all of this information, which comes in in different ways. Staying on top of that and coordinating that and turning it into a really empowering communications program is something that we're working on. That requires a lot of outreach on my behalf. I've been meeting with different departments across the college and smaller groups, usually through uh, Microsoft Teams or Zoom or something like that. Um, Our first responders and frontline workers, like custodial staff, who are so important for cleaning and making people feel confident. When I go to the office, there's blue tape on the doorknob that indicates it's a safe space to enter. Everything's been sanitized and clean. Those people do a whole lot. A good example of the communications challenge, these are people who aren't sitting in front of a computer, so an email message isn't something that will get to them. I had meetings from 8 o'clock in the morning until 10 p.m., in meeting the different shift workers in different spots across campus, small groups wearing masks, talking, listening to concerns. It's a lot of work, but it's important and valuable work. Um, I believe that's helping us, you know, turn the corner with both morale and communication issues and I think some of the trauma that my campus has lived through. I wanted to ask you because I did hear from some teachers about a month ago who were voicing some pushback to the spring plan and particularly over the idea of dual modality. Um, I know there was a petition that sort of was like essentially asking the school to stay remote and teachers were talking about like confusion and stuff like that. I wanted to ask how that all went down on your end. And has there been more discussion with teachers over this? There has. I think it culminated with the college Senate meeting at the end of last semester. Uh, But before that, to correct the record, I think there is an important distinction to make. Uh, No one required or mandated uh, our faculty to teach. We had enough volunteers to meet our goal of having about 20 percent of our classes be in an in-person modality to meet the needs of, of what our students wanted and needed and to be much more similar uh, to what our sister colleges are doing all across the state. At the time I entered Oneonta, um, after what happened at the very beginning of the fall, only 2% of our students had an in-person class. So uh, we had enough volunteers. In this information age, I think sometimes uh, one of the hindrances we have is that there's misinformation that can perpetuate uh, about things. So I think it, it took a little extra time being a new person The previous institution that I had worked with, Purchase College, um, I was president there, and I was very able to pull together a plan that was successful uh, this past fall. I think when I left there in mid-October, there were only three COVID cases. And in part, I think I was familiar with the culture there, 
people trusted me because they knew me for many years. I think that uh, my entry into the middle of the semester, to be quite honest, it, it was a challenge and a handicap of getting to know and kind of have a, a rhythm uh, with the team there. But I think that's behind us now. Did the falls outbreak have an impact on the school's finances or recruitment at all that you can tell? Absolutely. It has influenced every campus across the country. Visits were completely on hold for obvious reasons last semester, uh, which is a peak period, I think, where all you know high school students are, are looking at different colleges. There's been a huge slowdown in terms of application numbers coming in. And that's not unique to Oneonta. Uh, that's happening across the country financially. Not having students pay resident hall fees in the numbers that they do and purchase meal plans, all of this provides an economy of scale that has been completely disrupted. Uh, so, yes. Are things all right? How big is this semester for Oneonta? We're doing relatively well. Uh, the college has uh, a financial oversight system that includes financial reserves where we can handle one-time emergencies like this. Worst case scenario, we could probably get by in this environment for a couple of years, and then, like most schools, uh, we would be in real trouble. Do you think they're going to be able to have an in-person graduation this year? Most likely not. The planning for that would really need to be in earnest, you know, mid-February. Mm-hmm. Having thousands of people at a, a an in-person commencement ceremony in this environment would really be just 15 weeks away from now. Doesn't seem likely to me. Dennis Craig is acting president of SUNY Oneonta. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Jesse King. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Several New York state senators and assembly members say they were surprised to learn that Governor Andrew Cuomo's administration does not provide Internet access to people living in state-run group homes and other congregate settings, and they want that fixed immediately. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Senator James Skoufis, the chair of the Committee on Investigations and Government Operations, says two of his constituents alerted him to the lack of Wi-Fi at the state-run group homes. Phil and Marianne Smith's daughter, Michelle, who has a disability, was living at a state-run home when the COVID-19 pandemic started last March. They were not allowed to visit her, and she had no Internet access to visit them virtually. Skoufis said he was shocked to learn that no facility operated by the state's Office for People with Development Developmental Disabilities, or OPWDD, provides broadband access for residents. The past 10 or so months, these residents have been as isolated as ever before. Many have not been able to see their parents, their families at all. They need FaceTime, they need internet, they need uh, Wi-Fi in order to, to get the health care that they need, telemedicine that they need. Many can't leave the home. Uh, these residents, they need it for educational purposes, to be able to, to engage with their teachers and go to school. And so it is unthinkable that OPWDD has not provided uh, internet 
to the thousands of residents that they're supposed to service and care for. Senator Scufa says the Smiths could not attend the press conference held outside the agency's headquarters in Albany because they decided to take their daughter out of the home and care for her full time, and she's unable to travel. Scufa says he had two meetings with the agency's officials, and they told him the state was unwilling to pay the estimated $900,000 it would cost to hook everyone up with the Internet. He says that cost is a minuscule amount in the state's $190 billion budget, but he says the state officials didn't see it that way. And they actually compared it to having to purchase HBO and special channels on the TVs if the residents want to see these types of channels watching TV in these homes, they would need to purchase internet in these group homes if the residents wanted it. He says he was also told that the residents could not share the Wi-Fi provided free of charge to employees at the homes because of security concerns. Senator Samra Brook, chair of the Mental Health Committee, says the pandemic has laid bare already existing inequities in New York's and the nation's social infrastructure. She says some residents and their families can't afford the hundreds of dollars it would cost to contract with an Internet provider directly to get the service. And specifically in my role as chair of Mental Health Committee, I'm aware of the incredible toll that this pandemic and the isolation and the physical distancing, what that has had, the toll that it has taken on people's mental health. Doug Hovey, president of Independent Living Inc., which advocates for people with disabilities, says the failure to provide access to the Internet may be a violation of the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA. Title II of the Americans with Disabilities Act requires that state and municipal governments, state and local governments, provide universal access to accessibility features. Communication is no exception to that law. Cuomo's office did not return a request for comment. Senator Scoofus says if there's no resolution soon, he'll introduce a bill. It would mandate the Internet access be provided. The chair of the Assembly's Committee on People with Disabilities, Tom Abenanti, backs the measure. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. New York State Attorney General Letitia James has filed a lawsuit against the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The suit comes after the NRC denied the state's petition for a public hearing on the decommissioning of the Indian Point Nuclear Power Plant in Westchester County. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn. In its January 15th decision, the NRC denied requests for hearings and to intervene in the license transfer from Entergy Nuclear to Holtec International as owner and Holtec Decommissioning International as decommissioning operator. Attorney General James had filed a petition on behalf of the state in February to intervene in the license transfer, arguing that the transfer violates the NRC's rules for approving a nuclear facility license transfer. The Democrat also requested that the NRC hold a public hearing on whether the proposed Holtec licenses have demonstrated financial qualification, whether they have shown adequate decommissioning financial assurance, and whether their decommissioning plans will ensure adequate funding for decommissioning and the other activities for which Holtec sought to use the decommissioning funds, particularly spent fuel management. NRC spokesman Neil Sheehan says the commission does not comment on pending litigation and will issue a response in due time. He did, however, address the January decision. We received requests for hearings on the Indian Point license transfer application from a number of organizations and individuals, including the New York Attorney General's office. And the commission just recently issued a decision on those requests denying them, and 
This was based on a very careful review of a number of issues, including the ability of Holtec to properly fund the, the decommissioning work at Indian Point. The NRC had approved Indian Point's license transfer from Entergy to Holtec in November, saying it could still decide to allow a public hearing after the fact. In February, the town of Cortland, village of Buchanan, and the Hendrick Hudson School District filed petitions seeking party status and requested public hearings. Riverkeeper also sought to intervene and called for public hearings. The state attorney general's suit also challenges the NRC's decision to allow Holtec to use more than $630 million of the plant's dedicated decommissioning trust funds for spent fuel management costs, which she argues is the legal and financial responsibility of the federal government, the NRC Sheehan. And what Holtec had to do was present us with, you know, a breakdown as, as far as how they would carry out the decommissioning work and at the same time be able to adequately fund spent fuel management. And we've approved not only for Indian Point, but for a number of other plants, we've approved the use of decommissioning trust fund dollars for spent fuel management. Sheehan says the NRC continually monitors the funds during decommissioning and that Holtec has to annually report to the NRC its decommissioning trust fund status. Democratic New York State Senator Pete Harcum's 40th district includes Indian Point. He supports the attorney general's legal action. The state wants to weigh in. Local officials want to weigh in. The community has a right to weigh in. So um, the NRC waiving the hearing is absolutely outrageous. Secondly, allowing Holtec to divert uh, over $600 million in um, decommissioning activity money to management of the spent fuel cash is also just a dip in the ratepayer's pocket. That money is supposed to go for decommissioning activities. The federal government is supposed to pay for cask management. And what's further outrageous is since Holtec manufactures these casks, that money is going directly in their pocket and to their bottom line. A Holtec spokesman deferred comment to the NRC. U.S. Senator Charles Schumer was among federal lawmakers who called on the NRC last year to hear the state's and community's concerns before ruling on a license transfer. In a statement on the lawsuit, Schumer urged the NRC to immediately reverse its January decision, and he says that allowing Indian Point to change hands without a proper public hearing is a slap in the face to all who live and work in the communities surrounding the plant. Harcum, who sat on the state's Indian Point Closure Task Force, says a new task force is on the horizon. We worked with the governor at the end of last year. Uh, he's going to be establishing a decommissioning task force, which will be a new task force with state agencies and stakeholders to oversee the decommissioning. And part of it will be a focus on that money um, because that is ratepayer money, and New York State has a vested interest in that money. So we're very concerned. Uh, but first, let's see how the litigation goes. We think that's the best approach. Indian Point Unit 2 permanently shut down in April 2020, and Unit 3 is slated to permanently shut down by April 2021. Indian Point Unit 1 was shut down in 1974. The license transfer would take place after the shutdown of Unit 3. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Allison Dunn.
And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2105. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.